Good morning. Without faith, without believing in Him, it is impossible to please God. In order for us to draw near to Him, in order for us to worship Him as we have this morning, then we have to believe. Without that fundamental belief in God, everything else in Christianity is of no use to man. It starts with God, and that's where our sermon series, this new sermon series, begins this morning. It's a sermon series, as you can see, on belief. A minister was preaching to some coal miners, and he asked one man, What do you believe? Well, I believe the same as the church, the man replied. And what does the church believe, the minister retorted. Well, they believe the same as me. Seeing that he was getting nowhere, the minister asked, Well, what is it that you both believe? Well, I suppose the same thing. Do you know why you believe what you believe? If someone asked you out of the blue, Why is it that you believe in God? Are you prepared to give them an explanation? Their eternity may depend on it. And this sermon series is intended to both tie into our new Wednesday evening class on personal evangelism, but also to challenge the beliefs that we have. Not challenge them in a way to remove the belief, but challenge you to come to these beliefs on your own, through God's Word, instead of on the authority of someone else. Not by what I'm telling you, but by what, by what you're reading in the book. C.S. Lewis wrote, Believing things on authority only means believing them because you have been told them by someone you think is trustworthy. 99% of the things that you believed are believed on authority. I believe that there is such a place called New York. I could not prove by abstract reasoning that there is such a place, but I believe it because reliable people have told me so. The ordinary person believes in the solar system, atoms, and the circulation of the blood on authority because the scientists say so. Every historical statement is believed on authority. None of us have seen the Norman Conquest or the defeat of the Spanish Armada, but we believe them simply because people who did see them have left writings that tell us about them. In fact, on authority, a person who balks at authority and other things, as some people do in religion, would have to be content to know nothing all his life. My faith, for so long, was based on a basic understanding of Scripture, but that understanding came based on the authority of someone else, whether it be my, my parents, my youth minister, the preacher, other people who were saying what I needed to believe. But that belief was challenged. And my real belief, my real faith, it didn't come around in my life until after Sarah and I lost our first child. I don't know why I keep bringing that up. Because <laughs> it always makes me cry. <clears throat> but that was a turning point in my life, in my faith journey, if you will. Because we were left alone. And together... We had to come to a better understanding of Scripture, of who God is, of why we believed in Him, and, and how to find comfort in Him. So reflecting on that, 
and thinking about how to spread the gospel in the world as I'm preparing for our class on Wednesday night, it made me realize that those who are telling others about their faith need to know why they hold the beliefs they do. We talked a little bit about it in class this morning, um, and I, I was going to bring it up, but I didn't want to give away too much of my sermon. But 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. This morning we talked about defending the gospel. Does the gospel need defended? Absolutely. The word defend in the Bible is apologio. That's where we get the word apologetics. Defending the truth. Are you prepared to make a defense for the reason of the hope in you? And in order to do that, we need to know what the reason is. So the question each week is, why do you believe? And each week, we're going to look at something different, a different topic, but we're going to look to Scripture for the defense, the reason for the hope that we have, for the beliefs that we hold dear. Now, belief is a central part of being a Christian. Without it, what are we doing? What are we doing here? This central belief has to begin somewhere. And when it comes to following Christ and His commands, there's a lot of different beliefs that, that come into play. But at the start of all of it is a belief in God. Why do you believe in God? Now, I teased ahead for this series a couple weeks ago and told you that I wouldn't be doing the Bible app this, uh, this sermon series. And on top of that, all the verses that we're going to cover through the series are not going to be on the screen either, except for the scripture reading. I want to encourage you each week to bring your Bible, bring some paper, bring a pen, a highlight, or whatever, so that you can take notes, you can underline the verses, or highlight the verses in your Bible that help shape your belief. And if you don't have a Bible, see me, and I'll get one in your hands next week. Now this week, we're going to look at a few scriptures together, but where are those scriptures held? They're held within the Bible. Now, we're not talking about why I believe in the Bible today. We're talking about why I believe in God. And you can't believe in the Bible unless you believe in God, because God is the author of the Bible. And so sometimes when somebody asks you, why do you believe in God? I don't believe in God. Why do you? And if you pull your Bible out, there's, hang on a second. I don't believe that book because I don't believe in God. When it comes to personal Bible studies, when it comes to personal evangelism, you have to start with God. If the person that you're sharing faith with does not believe in God, then you can't take them to the Scriptures and tell them the story of Jesus just yet. Because the story of Jesus is held within the Scriptures. And so you have to first start with that belief in God. So why do you believe in God? Now maybe your belief comes from having believing parents or a friend who shared their faith with you, but there are many throughout this world that don't know God or don't have that luxury, but they believe in something. Turn over to Romans chapter 1. That's where we're going to start this morning. Now, a belief in a higher power has... Uh, it's something that's seen throughout all the world. Every single culture um, has this supreme being that they look to, this belief in something bigger, something greater than themselves. It's this knowledge that there is someone else or something else in power, and it's not man. Now, if we look at African cultures or even the Native American cultures and beliefs, we see this very clearly. 
When it rains, man sees it and knows that it's not by their doing. They didn't grab water and throw it up into the air for it to just stay up there and then come back down later. Or when they see the lightning from that thunderstorm and when it strikes a tree and it sets it ablaze, they know that that fire was not created by them, but by a power outside of their understanding. Many of those things today are explained through science. But how they came to be cannot and have not. What caused weather patterns to begin? Or what caused the creation of the world? Or as science claims, the Big Bang. What caused all of that? Now what's important to understand about the Big Bang, and there's a TV show with this title, it's a theory. And a theory is supposition, which is defined, the word supposition is defined as an uncertain belief. There is not solid evidence to prove that the universe just poof, appeared on its own. For decades, centuries even, millions of scientists have worked to disprove God's creation of the world. And ironically, the thing that they've been looking for and and say that they have found, they call it the God particle. It's called the Higgs boson, I think is, is, is what it's also called, referred to. But it's the thing that allegedly sparked the entire Big Bang sparked the entire creation of the world. It was the catalyst. It was an effect. But what caused it? Science can't explain that. It's just more theories. It's more uncertain beliefs. Science's attempts to disprove the existence of God and His creation are based in those uncertain beliefs, and basically it's all due to luck. That everything fell into perfect place by happens chance. But for these places that don't have science, that don't have a knowledge of these things that are going on in the scientific world, they still know that there is something greater because they can see these things that are happening around them that are outside the power of humans on their own. I know God exists because of the things that I've seen in His creation. The way birds migrate. The way the oceans churn and the currents that that keep the weather patterns going. The weather patterns in general. Or just look at yourself. The human body is a wonder. Humans shouldn't be able to walk on two legs. Some of us struggle with it. Because the way we're shaped. We're very top-heavy. We should just tip right over. But our brains are designed, our bodies are designed to allow for this type of movement, to maintain balance. Millions, maybe billions of minor adjustments that are made in the finer threads of our muscles to keep us upright. Or think about your eyes. Have you ever looked in the mirror really closely at your eye and you shine a light in it and watch what your iris does? That's incredible design. how they're able to see color and focus. It's all a perfect design. And I've talked about it before, about ultrasounds and and seeing your child in the womb. To look at that and not see the incredible creation that God has made is baffling to me. How a child can form from a couple of cells into what we are today. Let's look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, 
because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Ever since God created the world, created everything around us, man saw God. They saw God in his creation. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, speaking about idolatry. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Think back to what we talked about earlier, the Native Americans, the, the, the African, the ancient cultures, the Egyptian cultures, who saw the power of God in nature, Fire created by lightning sent down to earth, the rain, childbirth even. They see that and they say, that's not from man, but something else caused that. Something else created that. So we're going to create something that we can worship and honor this fire or honor this lightning. They tried to humanize the phenomenons into some sort of representation or anamorphically assigned cause to creatures, and they worshipped them or called them sacred. Paul says in Romans that they were futile in their thinking, or in other words, their thoughts were pointless or empty, selfish. They were looking to just serve themselves. They knew that something else was causing all of this. But to, to give themselves a better feeling about it, a better understanding, if you will, they just created whatever they wanted to create and worshipped that and said, Thank you for sending the lightning. Thank you for the fire. Our world and us, really, we have been designed. That all didn't happen by chance. And to be designed in such a way, there must be a designer. Take a watch, for example. When you look at a watch, you see design. And seeing that, you know that someone, likely a watchmaker, put a lot of thought and planning for this watch to look and work the way it does. You don't look at your watch and assume that it just fell from the sky and it looks and works the way it does just by happens chance. Watches are designed for a purpose. And that purpose is at the forefront of the designer's plan when he designs it. And so too with us, our designer, God, had a purpose for his creation. And we can never wrap our stupid human brains around the awe, the wonder, the magnitude, or the the spectacle of the universe, let alone the human body. And what I love about it is I don't have to. Because I believe that God designed all of that for His purposes. And Scripture points to this as well. A few other verses for you to write down and look into this afternoon or this week in your Personal study, Psalm 19, 1 through 4. We'll touch on that a little bit later, but Psalm 148, verses 1 through 10, and Job 12, 7 through 10. I'm going back talking about how our stupid human brains can't fathom the magnitude of the universe. Sarah and I, last night before bed, were talking about 
this. I asked her why she believed in God, and, and she said, my brain is just too tired. And I, I started talking about, you know, we started talking about the universe and how big it is. You know, scientists are starting to f- see how big the universe really is. And we don't know if there is some other planet like Earth out there somewhere that God created and has a whole other plan going on on that planet. For all we know, God created a planet. He created man again on that planet, and that man didn't rebel. That man stayed in the garden. We don't know. I hope to find out someday. But in the world that we live in today, we rebelled. We still rebel. That's what sin is. And we have Jesus to take that all away. Jesus is a topic for another day. But Paul says here in Romans that that we've been looking at, Romans chapter 1, and the psalmist also points to this, that God was always present. And the people could clearly see that there was a higher power in play. But they failed to honor God or even thank Him for His creation. And Paul also addresses this in Acts when he speaks to the council in Athens. Turn over to Acts chapter 17. We're going to be in verse 22, but this council that Paul addresses, also known as the Areopagus, say that five times fast, is full of philosophers and government officials. It's the high government council in Athens, basically. Some of these people were genuinely curious about these new teachings that Paul had brought to the people there. He was preaching throughout Athens in the streets about some guy named Jesus and his resurrection. But in this exchange between Paul and the, the council, we, we see something about belief in God. And it's a general argument really concerning this matter and something that we've already been talking about a bit. But it's this universal religious instinct and belief in, in, in a God or God or deity. Farrell Jenkins, a very wise Bible scholar, wrote in his book, Introduction to Christian Evidences, about this phenomenon that is seen throughout history, it's seen throughout all cultures. He writes, Men in all the world and throughout all time not only believe in deity, but also engage in acts of worship and devotion. The religious principle is extremely potent in all nations, dominating their thought and history. Everywhere the human heart has a craving for God. There will be exceptions as individuals, but the exceptions do not invalidate the rule. The atheist is and always has been the exception in every single society. Man's heart has a craving for God, a desire to commune, to fellowship with the Creator, and that desire is reciprocated from God. God desires to have a relationship with His creation, and that is why He sent Jesus. Again, we were made in God's image, right, Genesis? We were made in His image. And so we share attributes with Him. And this longing for fellowship with one another, that's just one of the many attributes that we have. So Paul, being in Athens, a city full of idol worship and false teaching, is provoked to teach the gospel there. And hearing what he was saying, these philosophers, the Athenians, they brought him up to the Areopagus to share more about it. Let's look at Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through the end of the chapter. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. 
For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each, each of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said. For we are indeed His offspring. Verse 29, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Remember, that was Jesus' sermon. From the first sermon to the last, repent, for the kingdom of God is here. Verse 31, Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this... He has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. Meaning, come back, we want to know more. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him, and they believed. Among whom were also Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. For every deepest longing of man, there is something that satisfies it, right? When we're hungry, there's food that satisfies our hunger. When we thirst, the reality of water to quench it is there. And Paul says that there is a natural longing, a craving for a supreme being. So therefore, there must be something, there must be a reality that complements and fulfills that craving. And that's God. That's what Paul says in verses 26 and 27. He made them from one man, every nation of mankind, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And this is where it gets good, that they should seek God. He created us so that we should seek Him. When He created man, and man was in the garden, what did He do? He walked in the garden with them. He didn't just create man to to work the earth. That was the job that they were given. But he created man so that he could fellowship with them, that he could have a relationship with them. And then he desires for them to seek the same with him. Now, the Athenians and other cultures around the world knew that there was a higher power. We all know about Greek gods and Roman gods, etc. But they resorted again to their foolish thinking and they assigned deity to other things. Now, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. It's not the things that we think to be right, but what has been determined to be right by God. And that's the next place where we can find God. 
outside of the natural things, outside of, and, and really more so in natural thought. And it's something that can be easily found in the world, even in those who don't believe in God. It's the concept of right and wrong. What ought to be. What seems right to man doesn't mean that it's right in God's eyes. However, the basic moral principles that we have as humans, the sense of right and wrong, that comes from God. That's part of His design and part of being made in His image. And no matter where you go in this world, Asia, Europe, Africa, South American villages, tribal areas, there is a sense of right and wrong. There are rules. There are moral codes, if you will. That in certain circumstances, certain things should be done. People are concerned with how people act, how they should treat other people. And in most cases, people are concerned that people don't often act as they should, right? Even atheists and agnostics have a sense of justice, and they get angry when it's violated. I'm sure an atheist believes that murder, rape, dishonesty, theft, adultery, etc. are all wrong things to do. And God is implicated in those thoughts. The moral nature of man suggests that the designer, the creator of man, must have been a moral being as well. Because that's our purpose. Much like the watch that is made so that the creator can tell time, the watch isn't designed or created so that the watch designer's arm would look robotic with gears and hands, etc. It has a purpose. So without God, if God didn't exist, then there would be no right and wrong. There would be no good or evil. For morality comes from our Creator. Atheists believe that there is no God and thus believe that morality is completely subjective. If there is no God, then an atheist should not object to me desiring to kill them. I don't. But... For illustration purposes, they can't object to that on moral grounds because they don't believe in God. Because to them, morality is subjective and not something that is objective based in moral concepts of the Creator. Subjective means anybody's morality can be whatever anybody's morality wants to be. And if we look at our society today, anybody can be whatever gender they want to be. There's the twisting of the morality. That's not a moral thought. That's not a moral thing. That goes against basic human thought. That's why psychologists call it a mental disorder. But the world is trying to normalize it. You cannot have right and wrong without a higher power that determines what is good and what is evil. The laws that we have in our country are determined by higher powers based on what? Moral laws. So along with this concept of right and wrong is this cosmological concept of cause and effect. I touched on this a little bit earlier, that every effect must have a cause. Now this is cosmological, uh, a cosmological concept because the universe itself is an effect. And for every effect, there must be a cause. And the cause of the universe is detailed in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. At the beginning of the universe was the Word, and the Word was with God. Turn over to John chapter 1. The Word 
was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. First three verses of John chapter 1. John tells us that Jesus, who is the Word, was with God in the beginning. Before the beginning, actually. Because the beginning, as we talked about this morning, what was the first of Paul's journey, what was Paul referring to in Philippians chapter 1 about from the first day? What are we talking about when we talk about the beginning? Well, the beginning of time, the beginning of the world, the beginning of us. And before all of that, there was God, there was the Word. That's what the Bible tells us. The Bible marks the beginning as the beginning of the world. But before that, God and the Word. All things were created through Him. God is the cause that resulted in the effect of the universe. But the argument that's often raised when we get to this point, when we're talking about God and especially about creation, the question that comes up is, well, who created God? Turn over to John chapter 4, verse 24. A couple pages over if you're still in John. Now, the issue with the question of who created God is that the law of cause and effect only applies to things that are physical. Right? It's actually a physics property. But John chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So by definition, God is not physical. He is spiritual. So he's not bound by the laws that we perceive to apply to physical things. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 23 through 24, details God's omnipresence, which goes against the laws of nature. I cannot be in multiple places at one time, no matter how much my wife wants me to be. But God can. So God, being unnatural, meaning that he's not something that we can wrap our brains around, really. He's not of this world. He's a spiritual being that cannot be contained in a physical law or limitation. As the cause of all things, he himself is uncaused. We cannot contain or explain God in human understanding. The Bible says that his peace surpasses our understanding. And if a nature, if a, if a, na- a characteristic of, of God cannot be understood, then the man who holds that characteristic can't be contained either, can't be understood. And that's where faith comes in. We have to be humble enough to know that God's existence is outside of our understanding as humans. We have to be able to see Him in His creation, to know that the things of this world were made possible not by chance, not by luck, but because of a perfect designer, of a creator. Now these arguments that we've been looking at this morning are all philosophical in nature. But as I hope I've presented, they're based on what the Bible says can be learned from God in nature. There are, of course, plenty of arguments that can be made for the existence of God through the Bible. Uh, Fulfilled prophecies. Scripture's understanding of scientific things before they were even discovered. When you look at the laws uh, of Moses, talking about the different things that the Jews weren't allowed to do, there's a reason for it. 
And when you look at science today, science absolutely confirms why they shouldn't do that. Let's just take circumcision, for example. The reason why circumcision was performed on the eighth day is because vitamin K is not created in the body until the eighth day of a child's life. That's why children today are given a shot of vitamin K when they are born so that they can be circumcised within the next 24 hours, pretty much. But God said, don't do this until the eighth day because what does vitamin K do? It causes clotting. And so a baby would bleed to death if they were circumcised before the eighth day. But Scripture shows us that God has an understanding of these scientific principles well before man had any idea about any of that. The consistency of Scripture found throughout, the evidences of the resurrection of Jesus, all of these things and many, many more that we're going to look at as we study about our belief in the Bible uh, next week. That's, that's our topic next week, why I believe in the Bible and the belief in Jesus, as we'll talk about later. But as I said at the beginning of this lesson this morning, we must start first with a basic belief in God. Without that belief, the Bible is just a book. Without that belief, Jesus is just a man who is really a good guy. But the world didn't need a good guy. The world didn't need a teacher. They didn't need a healer. They needed a savior. Faith in God is a choice that we make between two alternatives. In the river of evidence for God's reality, the reality of God, it runs strong and deep. But its current is not irresistible. Many people swim against it, at least for a while. Choosing to believe that God exists is a voluntary act of trust. We believe not because we think the reality of God is is absolutely unequivocal, but because we judge the evidence to be greatly in His favor. After careful thought, faith puts its trust and confidence in a premise that is seen to be supported by the weight of the evidence. And faced with the ultimate fork in the road, faith understands that a decision must be made and it responsibly chooses one of the alternatives. But the decision to believe isn't merely the adoption of an intellectual position. It's the courageous taking of a stand. Like all ideas, the idea of God has consequences. Jesus talks about that numerous times throughout Scripture, as do His apostles. And faith dares to accept those consequences. It says, I have considered the matter, and I am prepared to make my choice. What I have seen has taught me to trust this thing that I cannot see. The reality of God. I not only believe, but I am prepared to follow my faith wherever it leads. That was Paul. It's not a quote from Paul, but that describes Paul. As we talked about this morning, as we're studying Philippians in our Sunday morning class, Paul, sitting in a jail cell, had joy. Someone without, someone without God doesn't have joy sitting in jail, being punished for their belief. Turn over to Matthew chapter 13. One more verse before we close out this morning. Are you willing to make the decision to believe in God? The Bible tells us of the time that is coming when the reality of God will no longer be just a matter of faith. It will be an overwhelming fact. Impossible to deny and terrifying, really, in its implications for those who have tried to deny it. Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 through 15. This is Jesus talking. 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good fish into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. So do you want to be a part of the group thrown into the furnace? I don't think there's anyone here or anyone anywhere, if they understood the implications of their disbelief, that they would choose that group. Only a fool would ignore the evidence of the existence of God that is out there. It's seen in nature. It's in human thought. And it's seen throughout history. Psalm chapter 14, verse 1 says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. If you're here this morning and you believe in God, I want to encourage you that there's more to believe. This is just the start of faith. Just believing in God is not the answer, but it is the beginning. It's the beginning of a wonderful journey of discovery, of understanding, of just what our purpose as His creation truly is. So this morning, if the church can assist you in any way, be it for prayers, for you, for someone else. If you desire to learn more about becoming a Christian, or if you've decided to make that decision today and be baptized for the remission of your sins, won't you come now while we stand and sing?